You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan White. Greetings and welcome to the B&H Photography Podcast, which is recorded live from our Hudson Yards broadcast studio, live on tape. Okay, on May 10th, 1869, where were you? On that day, a gold ceremonial spike was driven into a rail line at Promontory Summit, Utah, marking the completion of the first transcontinental railroad across the United States. Photographer A.J. Russell was on hand to document the occasion by taking the iconic image of two locomotives meeting at that historic spot with hundreds of workers gathered in celebration. On today's episode of the B&H Photography Podcast, we're going to be recognizing the 150th anniversary of that momentous occasion with three guests. Joining us from Madison, Wisconsin via Skype is Scott Lotus. Scott is the president and executive director of the Center for Railroad Photography and Art, also known as CRPA. He's also an accomplished railroad photographer and author. Joining us in our studio today is Eric Williams, a fine art photographer who specializes in railroad themes. His work has been exhibited in the Monmouth Museum, the Center for Fine Art Photography, and the Railroad Museum of Pennsylvania. He's also regularly published in Trains Magazine and has been featured in Black and White Magazine. Also joining us in the studio is B&H's very own Dennis Lipsy, who is an accomplished railroad photographer and the visual force behind his gorgeous book, Smoke Over Steamtown, which was published in 2016. Dennis worked as an assistant camera operator in the movie business before it returning to his photography roots. Let's start with Scott. First of all, welcome everybody. Thanks for joining us all here today. Thank you. Thank um, you. No, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Scott, well, let's start with you. May 10th is a big day for someone whose work uh, blends photography and railroads. What does the CRPA have planned? Anything specific? Well, we look at this date as nothing short of a golden opportunity. I mean, this is one time in the history of my life, at least, that Pretty much everyone in the nation is going to, at least for this one brief moment, be looking and thinking about railroads. There's going to be a lot of national media coverage, uh, a lot of stories and programs and events and activities taking place. And so for us, it's just a prime opportunity uh, to leverage all of the attention into exhibitions and publications and other uh, things that are core to our mission. Our mission is to preserve and present significant images of railroading. Uh, certainly, Russell's champagne photo was one of the most significant images of railroading, and I would even say most significant images of American history at all, of all time. And so having this spotlight focused on this is just such a great opportunity for us to take advantage of that. So we're putting together, uh, actually, we have put together a project that we call After Promontory. And the reason we say After Promontory is because we're trying to expand the narrative, starting with that first transcontinental line, but then looking at all of the other transcontinental lines that followed. Uh, Promontory really ushered in a, a period of about 40 years of just expansive rail construction throughout the western United States. Uh, there were at least six other unique lines that were built and completed across the western United States. Several others proposed. Some of them uh, started, but uh, at least six others that were finished. Uh, and they really collectively changed the, the shape of the West and, and really the nation as we know it, reori reorienting um, the nation from this kind of north-south agrarian uh, water and animal-powered economy into an east-west industrial economy. And it was the railroads that did that. And significantly for us, 
photography was key for documenting and portraying that. Uh, the railroads and photography really grew up together in the 19th century. These two technologies are, are just, you know, this kind of perfect pairing of, of this transformative industrial technology with this mechanized but yet very artistic process and way of recording and documenting it. And the Transcontinental Railroad was really the first uh, big engineering and construction project in the U.S. to be documented so extensively by photography. And that followed for all of the other lines. And so we launched this project to, to look collectively at all of the transcontinental lines and at their just incredible impacts on changing the shape of the Western U.S. and the nation as a whole. I have a question. Now, the, the photograph itself that we're talking about was taken by uh, Andrew J. Russell, A.J. Russell, but there were there were other photographers there. Yeah, there were a total of three. So A.J. Russell was doing photography for the Union Pacific Railroad, uh, building east from Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, Alfred Hart was doing photography for the Central Pacific Railroad. Um, the Union Pacific was building west from Omaha uh, with A.J. Russell's photography. The Central Pacific was building east from Sacramento, California, and Alfred Hart was uh, photographing its work. And then there was also a Utah photographer on hand, a man named Charles Savage. And so the three of them actually uh, all photographed the scenes and events of Promontory. But it's Russell's that, that uh, has really been the most widely distributed and the one that's really come to, to characterize and, and symbolize this this really profound moment in time. And interestingly to me, it was really the photographers who were kind of dictating all of the events of the day. I mean, mm. you know, these were these were cameras that required very long exposure times and a lot of light. And so the photographers really were the masters of ceremony in terms of coordinating all the events and setting the timing for advantage of the sun angles and everyone posed and into position. And so I think this is a great example of, of the photographers kind of creating this at least one little moment of history when they were really um, dictating all of the events of the day so that this moment could be captured and recorded for posterity and, and for us to still appreciate 150 years later. And can I ask, were, were the, as far as you know, any, were the photographers hired by the rail lines themselves and were you know, on staff, I guess you would call it, and, you know, following the progression of the construction? Or were they, you know, freelance photographers, as we call them in, in today's parlance, uh, out there covering what interested them? Uh, that's a great question. And there are people that have studied and written about this a lot more extensively than I have. Uh, I, it's my understanding all of these relationships were were, were somewhat varied. And uh, I think it was in some cases closer to a freelance relationship. I know in, in the case of Russell, I think he had some of his expenses paid by the railroad, uh, but he made a lot of his income by selling his work to the people he was with. I mean, he would mm -hmm. sell his work to, you know, pictures of workers to those workers so that they would have mementos. I and mean, I think a lot of that went on. So it, it wasn't like the, the railroads were simply bankrolling these photographers to be out there. They were certainly responsible for, uh, for making some of their own money in the process. Mike, is that a lot of these uh, the people who were involved in this never saw a photograph before this actual occasion because as, as you mentioned railroads and photography came about not that much earlier than the picture this photograph was taken Oh, I could only imagine. I mean, we had the daguerreotype was really the first successful commercial photography process introduced in 1839. So that's only 30 years prior to this image. And, you know, certainly at a time when, you know, only 
uh, a few people could afford to to purchase and and really become experts in the equipment and technology required. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right for these people working out on the frontier. And in many cases, this would have been the first time they'd ever seen a photograph and seen the magic, as you say, of that image just you know appearing on this medium before them. I know. I actually went back into records, and when these guys were ordering from B and H, it we took up to four months for the supplies <laughs> to get to them. It's a it was a very different world back then. What kind I'll of photograph was faster shipping now. <laughs> what kind of photograph, what process was actually used for this? So I believe in Russell's case, this would have been a, a, a mammoth uh, glass plate negative. He was using uh, his enormous imperial, uh, the 10 by 13 inch glass plate, uh, collodion uh, covered uh, uh, material. He would uh, wind up going into, a, you set up the camera, uh, ponderous camera, getting everybody arranged. Then he'd run over to his, his little cart that horse-drawn cart would had a dark room in it, and uh, then he would, in the dark room, uh, coat the plate with this sticky uh, collodion uh, uh, light-sensitive material. Put it in a, a light-tight magazine. Go over to the camera. Put it into the camera. Pull out the light uh, slide. Uh, then, because the camera, enormous as it was, uh, it didn't it didn't have a shutter. It didn't have f-stops. And the only thing that he did was take the lens cap off for a predetermined number of seconds. From looking at the images, it looks like, oh, uh, the exposure would be somewhere in the neighborhood of 15, maybe 30 seconds. And then he put the, the uh, cap back on. And then he had to put the dark slab in, take the magazine out, go back to his little cart and develop the, the glass plate, this 13... Uh, by 10-inch, pl- uh, uh, this enormous piece of brittle glass out in the west in the heat uh, inside this dark uh, room and develop it while it was still wet. And this is just crazy to <laughs> me, but he, the, the wet plate process li- existed into the 1920s as a viable means uh, of doing exceptional recording uh, an incredible detail, uh, and that's why it, it existed so much longer. I'm assuming that the gold, the the Golden Spike ceremony was something that was a, a pretty big deal. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't just these guys out there and and the companies themselves celebrating, right? It was, it was something that well, was recognized. Well, it's interesting. All over. I mean, because there's you know there's what's in the photograph, but then there's also what's not in the photograph. And I mean, I think a couple of the the really exceptional elements that are not in the photograph. Are for one the the many Chinese workers who who really bore the brunt of construction of the Central Pacific Railroad, uh, building that line up through the the Sierra Mountains over Donner Pass, um, at, often at great cost to themselves. Um, and not a one of them is pictured in that photograph. Hmm. Interestingly enough, nor any uh, high-ranking officials from Washington D.C. Uh, really, uh, and not even any of the the big uh, uh, financiers of the railroads are pictured there. How many people are actually involved in building this railroad from both sides coming together? Any idea what the what the actual uh, manpower count was? So approximately about eight thousand people. Whoa. Okay. And how long did it take to get from Oklahoma out to? Well, they they did the the Pacific Railroad Act was signed into law by uh, President Abraham Lincoln, in what I keep forgetting. It's like eighteen sixty two. The first one was eighteen sixty two. Yeah, and so they finished it in eighteen sixty nine. Okay. And also to mention about the photograph, uh, uh, there is a heart. Uh, he took a photo that looks east, and you do see Leland Stanford, uh, one of the big four of. Uh, uh, of the Central Pacific, he was like the highest ranking guy there, mm-hmm. and he had his big 
fancy private car there and all that sort of stuff. And so there were photographs taken of that. But as much as the photographers were uh, trying to uh, stage this thing, when the actual event where they were, you know, hammering in the spikes, all the construction guys, in spite of the fact that the presence of the army, the cavalry was there, they, they still swarmed in. So they really didn't get a, a great photograph of that moment. And that's why Stanford later had a, a, a gargantuan painting that put in lots of people who weren't there. Right. I've seen that photo, or that painting. Yeah. Russell's photograph is fascinating because uh, they moved the, the locomotive on the right, is the Union Pacific uh, 119, and they moved it closer to the Central Pacific's Jupiter locomotive, which hadn't moved. And so actually, uh, in Russell's photograph, the last spike would have been right underneath the tender of the locomotive on, on the right. Particularly with, with Russell's shot, it became so iconic. I, I think it's because the, it, it's got the leading lines of the construction workers going right up there to Samuel Montague, chief engineer on the left of the CP, and uh, Grenville Dodge on the right, uh, chief engineer of the UP, shaking hands. And that of all the photographs taken at that day, this is the one with those smokestacks, the men, the lines, the shaking of the hands. It, it did become this iconic uh, photograph that is, is important to the United States history. Mm. Well, if you were to go to that that location right now, is there anything there to note at these days? I mean, was it just the middle of nowhere with a little plaque? I mean, what's there now? Well, it's a fascinating story. This is now the uh, the Golden Spike National Historic Site, and I was uh, just there actually last month for the opening of our After Promontory exhibition <laughs> okay. at the Brigham Young <laughs> University Museum of Art, uh, and uh, we had a, a conference out there as well. And so on the Sunday following our conference, a group of us went up and actually hiked part of the old Central Pacific grades. And where the two lines actually met, uh, the Park Service has gone. So the, the actual railroad uh, now runs uh, quite a bit to the south. Uh, in 1904, the Southern Pacific, which was the Central Pacific's uh, successor, completed a line actually across the Great Salt Lake built on a causeway called the Lucene Cutoff. And this eliminated about 40 miles of very curvy and steep grades that went up and over Promontory Summit. Uh, and so it allowed the, the railroad a much more direct and faster route uh, across the Salt Lake. The, that original line was then relegated to sort of branch line status, and it remained in service uh, until World War II, uh, when it was finally taken up and uh, used for scrap value for the war effort. And so since then, uh, this has just been uh, an you know an empty uh, right of way up there in the the high deserts of uh, of, of uh, northern Utah. Uh, but right at where the two lines met, uh, the Park Service has relayed uh, about a mile or two of track uh, using uh, pretty old rails. I, I saw some of them dated from 1887, so it's you know very close to, to size that you would have seen there at the time of the of the joining of the rails. And they do have replica locomotives that were built in 1979 uh, of the two locomotives featured in, in Russell's photograph, the the Central Pacific's Jupiter and the Union Pacific's Number 119. And these both operate uh, during the season, which runs from about May through October, uh, the engines will actually come up and, and, and meet, uh, and um, you know, there's a bit of a reenactment that takes place there, and there's a commemorative tie uh, right in the middle where the two lines would have met. How many of like the original or of the, the rail lines that were working out west at, at the height of, of railroad travel uh, are, still remain or still are, are still functioning? 
Of the major transcontinental routes, the only one that's not there anymore is the Milwaukee Road, uh, which was abandoned in uh, in 1980, uh, and that was about the western um, half of it, uh, from Miles City, Montana, uh, out to uh, out to the Pacific Coast. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Rock Island Line was also abandoned about the same time. That didn't make it all the way to uh, to the west uh, to the Pacific. It it connected with the Southern Pacific in New Mexico. So those are the are the two big abandonments. There's been a number of branch lines and secondary lines that have been abandoned, uh, but otherwise all of the major lines uh, are still there and still in service. And for the most part, they're actually busier today um, than they ever have been. Uh, interesting thing about railroads in the United States, um, you know, we we think in terms typically of passenger travel, and of course, you know, uh, most other developed countries in the world have far superior passenger networks mm-hmm. to ours, uh, but we're really a world leader in terms of rail freight service. That's really where we've prioritized our, our our rail network and these lines are incredibly busy moving freight and you know what we've seen is that the the, the best built lines tend to consolidate and, and get more of the traffic and these you know some like the Milwaukee Road was the last of the the major transcontinental routes to be finished it ended up being abandoned but the the original Union Pacific line especially over uh, across Nebraska and Wyoming um, you know that that can see 60 70 80 trains a day sometimes and I mean right. these are enormous trains that are a mile or two in length and hauling maybe 10,000 or more tons of cargo. So, mm-hmm. I mean, these, the, you know, that's it's just amazing to think from, you know, these, these little tea kettle locomotives from 1869 and now these massive 4,000 horsepower diesels that are you know, running in multiple and pulling these long trains across the country. And it's much of it's over, um, you know, the same, the same roadbed that was, that was hacked out of the earth in the 1860s. Mm-hmm. And Scott, can you talk a little bit about uh, the, the Promonto- after promontory project and the book itself and, and some of the the sourcing of the photos, and, and maybe that'll get get us into uh, talking about the uh, the Center for Railroad Photography and Art, and and, and what you guys do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So our, our after promontory project looks collectively at all of these transcontinental routes, and it looks at the at them through the lens of photography. And again, there's this this great synergy between railroads and photography. Uh, and you know, as we started looking, uh, our curator, uh, who, uh, who Dennis mentioned earlier, uh, Alexander Craighead, a PhD student at Berkeley, uh, in their architecture department there, uh, and really someone knowledgeable about the history of photography and uh, the holdings of photography in the Western U.S. Uh, went out and scoured archives uh, throughout the Western United States and just found some incredible troves of imagery, some well-known like Russell's and Hart's and, and others that aren't so well-known. Uh, but collectively, they were able to really shine a light on this this era of transcontinentalism and all the construction that happened, the railroads being built, uh, preserved in these really beautiful images at, at um, you know all of these wonderful archives. And so we, we coalesced all of that together into our After Promontory project, which consists of a 320 page uh, heavily illustrated book there's about 250 photographs in the book from from various archives including a few from our own uh, but then from these institutions throughout the west and then we have historical essays by several scholars of railroad history that add historical context and uh, also a photographer named Drake Hokinson who has done sort of a, a re-photography project uh, along the original route of that original transcontinental line can you speak a bit about railroad heritage the the journal that you published absolutely yeah so the center really has, as I said, our mission is to preserve and present significant images of railroading. And we do this through five uh, core activities. Uh, we have collections that we acquire and maintain and make publicly accessible. A lot of those are uh, highlights are available on our website. As 
I said, we have about 250,000 images right now. We have a couple of big acquisitions coming up in the year ahead that's going to push that total up to about 400,000 or so. And mm-hmm. so we're we're looking for more space and uh, and hoping to get a couple more interns to help with our processing work mm-hmm. on those because we are trying to digitize everything and then uh, post selections of those on our on our website where people can search and and the, those can be available for for use in other people's projects. Besides collections, we also do publications like the After Promontory book, which we publish through Indiana University Press. We also publish ourselves in some cases. We publish a quarterly journal called Railroad Heritage uh, that's at least 48 pages every quarter, and it looks at a wide range of topics in railroad photography and art. So we look at both historic imagery as well as contemporary practitioners. Uh, We look at uh, painters as well as photographers, and in some cases, other visual artists. And it's sort of a mix of, of, of history and art history railroad history as you know as well as photography uh, and what's going on today and in, in the art world and how people are looking at railroads today and so it's just a, a great range we really seek a lot of diversity in that from you know people of different ages um, and genders and all, all different types of practitioners that are going out and, and looking at the railroad do you look to collect uh, specific collections from one photographer or an archive uh, is that is that what you're about or is it also just taking in what people may have well we we do have to be somewhat strategic because i mean there's there's a, an incredible amount of work out there and a lot of it's really good and maybe in a an, an ideal world we'd be able to preserve everything but we've determined that's just not practical mm-hmm. i mean there's you know with the rise of amateur photography there's just you know innumerable images out there uh, so we are kind of focusing on, on some of the big names within railroad photography uh, one that we're really excited about uh, as a photographer i know near and dear to, to dennis and eric's heart that's uh, uh jim shaughnessy um yes. who sadly passed away last year, uh, but we've been working with his widow and son and are in the process of taking on that collection, which numbers about 90,000 images and is uh, particularly strong on on railroads in the northeastern United States from the late 1940s, um, you know, into the early 21st century. Um, you know, so there's a couple of other uh, major collections like that that we have acquired or that we're looking to acquire. And then beyond that, we're really trying to build up a representative archive that, that is able to kind of touch on all uh, different geographies, uh, eras, styles, types, um, you know, something that can really allow us to to tell as many stories about railroading and photography and art and history as we can. Uh, but we're not trying to be a comprehensive archive. You know, we're not trying to, I mean, there are some photographers who go out and try to photograph you know, every railroad's locomotives. And that's you know, certainly a, one very viable approach to railroad photography, but we just determined that's not going to be the, the best approach for building up our archive. We're yeah. trying to do something that's that's more representative rather than comprehensive. And can any of you mention some photographers of note, railroad photographers of note? I mean, that, that goes to Scott, Dennis, Eric, anybody other than yourselves, of oh. Course, Winston but, uh, Link, some some famous names. No, oh, certainly there is O. Winston Link and Jim Shaughnessy, uh, Richard Steinheimer, uh, Philip Hastings. Uh, these are uh, men's that that are sort of gods um, for me, and uh, certainly inspirations for uh, Eric and, and and Scott. Eric, any any thoughts on on that? Any photographers that? Well, uh, Richard Steinheimer and Ted Benson, uh, who um, Dennis mentioned, are uh, obviously big influences. And then I would throw in there uh, David Plowden, mm-hmm. who's a, a well-known um, photographer that shoots, you know, all kinds of genres, not just railroad photography. But mm-hmm. I think that was one of his early interests was railroads, and he's published. Um, I don't know, two or three books on just railroad photography yeah, amongst, you know, like probably least. like Plus, two, two yeah. dozen books of just general mm-hmm. photography documenting, you know, like the... Uh, His sense of loss of America. Uh, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's your perspective on it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is something I want to dig into later. This, this kind of balance between nostalgia and, and the contemporary, you know, world of railroads too. But sure. yeah, go ahead. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, for, for some people, you know, it is about a sense of loss or things that, uh, you know, a world that was better, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Tell that to the Chinese workers. <laughs> <laughs> correct, correct. You know, for, for me, a lot of this photography is just looking at it from, you know, a contemporary point of view of when they shot the stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know if, if David Plowden, for instance, was necessarily thinking about the things that were going to be lost, you know, back in the, the 40s, 50s, 60s. Perhaps he was. Um, um, same with He us. was, Eric, actually. He was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For, for, for me, um, you know, I, I, I guess I have more of a reverence for the, the current state of railroading. And as you mentioned, Scott, um, you know, railroads... Um, take out the passenger side of the equation. The freight business is is bigger than it ever was. Uh, railroads are stronger than they ever were, moving more traffic in the United States than they ever were. And I think for me, it's like um, a, a lot of uh, rail rail fans, um, you know, look. Um, with a nod towards the past, I think, um, thinking about like their childhood, things that interest them, you know, maybe their first train set memories. For me, it's more about, you know, like taking a look at the current railroad scene and finding like um, an aesthetic that I feel like sort of um, gives a nod to the past, um, you know, gives reverence to the past in terms of the, the railroad's historical importance, its cultural importance. But uh, for me, I, I really find a lot of joy in just shooting contemporary railroading. Mm. Is there- well, Eric, I mean, your, your work is so strong, uh, and in particular in, in really showing the relationships between railroads and the landscape and how the light can have such a, a great impact on how we view that. And I think that's that's a really a good example of the ongoing appeal of railroading. I mean, it is so intrinsically tied to the American landscape uh, in this country, and being able to portray that relationship. I mean, the you know the the technology has changed greatly in 150 years, but those mountains they cross are are still largely the same, and it's still this really incredible relationship uh, between technology and nature, and I think that that has a real compelling element to it in contemporary photography as well as historic photography. Yeah, even though we're talking about, you know, a significant event that happened 150 years ago, the the basic elements of railroading haven't changed. You know, it's still still rails on, uh, still wheels on still rails, you know, with a, a locomotive that's propelling the train, and, you know, the train cars and the functions of them are pretty much the same. So mm-hmm. um, for me, that's just super interesting um, that, uh, you know, we, we can, you know, we have this heritage and this history that we can look at. And there's so much uh, of our cultural cult- culture that's infused in, you know, like uh, about the railroad. But, uh, you know, the the basic essence of railroading hasn't changed. And I find that completely fascinating. For me, it's, um, you know, I don't really necessarily think of my work as railroad photography. Mm-hmm. You know, I think of it as just photography right. and I happen to be, um, you know, somebody that is in it, has interest in the railroads. So the, inter- the, the railroads are my favorite subject matter. I do shoot uh, other uh, subjects, but uh, railroads are probably 90% of where my interests are. And that's when I specifically go out um, to, to spend a day, um, uh, you know, like shooting someplace. It's usually trackside somewhere. But I'm not necessarily looking to be considered like a railroad photographer. You know, mm-hmm. I, I want to be considered a, a photographer, photographer that shoots oh. railroads. Good for you. Sounds good. Okay, we're going to take a short break and come back and talk a little bit about some of the tools and techniques of choo-choo train photography. Stay tuned. Mm-hmm. 
We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at BH Photo Video, hashtag BH Photo Podcast. Okay, we are back, and John, you have a question. Okay, well, I just want to jump into this. What defines railroad photography? And um, are there photographers who are working completely separate from this idea of landscape and, and scale and or speed of train who maybe are focusing on something completely different? And, and where do you guys in, in the world that you work in, what would you consider a railroad photograph and what wouldn't be? Most uh, people their first passion is railroads. So they just want to get a, a picture of the mm-hmm. train. Mm-hmm. And they don't necessarily care the means or the quality of the photograph, um, whether it's with their you know, their phone, whether it's with their SLR, they want a picture. And um, it's sort of about like collecting um, images, um, collecting pictures of specific locomotives, collecting pictures of specific sites. Mm-hmm. So th- there's a lot of commonalities in uh what I would term as rail fan photography okay. versus railroad fan photography. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, just like any um, genre, whether it's cars or ships or birds, um, you know, you got people, their primary passion is the subject matter itself. And then the picture that they get is really just, you know, them it's grabbing a record. A, yeah, they're grabbing mm-hmm. a piece a of that passion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, I, um, out of that, uh, I think, you know, most most photography, you know, beyond rail fan photography is more documentative. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's more about taking a document of something versus interpreting it, you know, putting you like your own voice, mm-hmm. um, you know, mm-hmm. so, some subjectivity into it. And I think we all start that way. I know uh, when I was a kid, I used to look at Trains Magazine, you know, from when I was 11, 12, 13 years old, which was like the primary source for railroad photography. And it was my impetus to get a camera was like, hey, I want to take pictures just like these guys that I'm seeing. So I got my first camera when I was 15, a little Kodak Instamatic. The pictures were awful, mm-hmm. you know, with, <laughs> within a year. My dad saw that I had a passion for photography, so he let me uh, borrow his uh, Kodak uh, Retina 3C, I think Ooh, it was, which was a nice little rangefinder. I have one. It's a nice camera. Um, you know, and that definitely elevated my photography uh, from a technical point of view. Um, but still, you know, there was a long ways to go in terms of uh, really developing my skills. But mm-hmm. uh, I have a passion in photography, so I went into, um, in high school, I started taking um, darkroom classes and photography classes, and um, that eventually went into college. And uh, in college, my my actually in high school, I would say my, my initial plan was to go to Brooks Institute in California to be mm. a commercial photographer. But when I approached my parents with that, they're mm. like, no, 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 mm-hmm. no. Mm-hmm. You're never going to be a successful photographer, you know. <laughs> and that was just based on their assumption that, you know, like photography was just a bad profession to go into. Right. So yeah, I did go into design, which is my current profession. You know, I've been doing that for like 30 years now. And um, But but on the same time, I feel like I'm a master of my profession now. So I was looking for like, you know, like another creative outlet about 10 years ago. So um, I just happened to pick up a digital camera and I started uh, shooting again and you know with a digital camera just you're just taking so many more images so you're just like learning a lot quicker mm-hmm. um, I just never shot that many images back in the, the black and white and um, chrome days so um, so it just sort you of evolved from there yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you get better quickly yeah. Yeah, one yeah, of the things yeah, I've yeah. noticed about your work in particular is I've looked at a lot of train photography and I, I find it to be very powerful trains are powerful uh, the, the look the size of them the sound of them uh, if you if you just stand next to one that's moving you it the sound goes through you it's uh, a very 
I'll use the word sensual uh, in, in many, many ways because it, it's just a powerful thing in itself. Your photographs of trains, many of them are very peaceful, I find. I find I actually found in a lot of your pictures, there's a quiet aspect and there's a train coming around the bend and there is smoke coming out of the stacks and you could tell that there's a lot of power and energy, but it's a quiet picture. And I found that to be kind of unique. That's really good, Alan. That, that describes his work just perfectly. And I hadn't thought of it that that way before. His stuff is very peaceful uh, in quiet. I, I like that. I it's like, like that. you've tamed your subject in a sense. It's right, not, right, right. It's not running you. You're, you're controlling yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, that's an interesting observation because um, – you know, oftentimes I am directly trackside and you will feel, you know, the presence of a train when it's coming. Oh, you yeah. feel the air pushing you. There have been times where my tripod has been knocked over by the, you know, the wind of mm -hmm. the of the train itself. And you could feel the ballast or the ground moving itself from, you know, the weight of the trains. But uh, generally, most of my photography isn't necessarily trackside. It's usually from like a, a different vantage point. And for me, it's about incorporating the context of the landscape, whether mm. it's, you know, a rural landscape or an urban uh, landscape. And I, I think a lot of that uh, in the last five years has just been uh, driven by um, my, what I would call, you know, like photographic or, or uh, visual literacy. Um, I've been looking at a lot of images. I always have. And I think that's just sort of like starting to stick with me and uh, looking at art where, you know, train may be part of the landscape, but it may not be the primary part of the landscape. And like you said earlier, you know, like um, I see a lot of my work as being more landscape inspired. Um, mm -hmm. uh, just happens to have a train in it. And do you, um, would, What's your process? Do you scout locations? Do you drive around? Do you find that that you know that hillside that you want to look over? Yeah, a little or, bit of both. Mm -hmm. um, you know, looking at images all the time, I, I see what other photographers have uh, have shot. Um, sometimes I find like it might be an interesting location that I want to try to get like a different um, type of image mm -hmm. of, a different vantage point. Mm -hmm. Other times, I will be looking solely for like my own um, you know point of view, like a, a place that I haven't uh, seen shot before. Um, and, you know, it's really not that hard to find if you're out, if you're willing to, you know, walk, if you're willing to, you know, hike in a little bit. Um, most railroad uh, photography is done, you know, curbside or, you know, from a relatively easy place to access. Right. So if you're willing to hike in, and I know like Scott, his photography is very much driven by that. Um, mm. he, he loves to hike and, you know, it's apparent in his photography. Uh, what about, so, so what about like restraints, legal restraints and, and trespassing restraints? I mean, is that something that you guys are bumping into as an issue a lot, trying to be in a spot where you're not supposed to be? Well, that's one of the reasons I, I like uh, photographing out in the rural area, um, because there, there are um, obviously a lot of trespassing issues in the urban scene. Um, there are most of the railroads have their own police force mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, they're really just trying to keep an, an eye out for potential, um, not, not so much trespassers as people that are like trying to break into railroad cars, um, and steal the merchandise or, mm -hmm. you know, damage a train or, you know, do something like that. So, mm -hmm. but, but I, but I do find when, when I'm shooting like at Hoboken, for instance, you know, I will be approached by the New Jersey transit police force. Um, they are usually very kind to me and say, you know, what are you doing? You know, I just want to check in with you, you know, write your name down. But, you know, like th there's always that factor that, you know, the police are there. Yeah. Um, so the nice thing about being out in the rural place, especially for hiking in, is that, you know, I, I generally don't see anybody, much less a police person. Mm -hmm. And I, and I kind of like that. You know, I, I kind of like um, 
hearken um, like a day spent trackside to like a day fishing. You know, right. it's like a day where I can go out <laughs> right. and be peaceful, be by myself. Um, if I see a train, great. But if I don't see a train, it's usually, you know, like I'm usually rewarded with, you know, a beautiful scene right. um, based on where I'm trying to shoot. And, uh, you know, it's a wonderful time trackside. You know, I think, Eric, you, you raised some, some good points there. And one of the, the challenges we've seen in railroad photography has been sort of a, a cultural shift, a lot of it stemming from the, the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And, and you know, the railroads have become a lot more vigilant about patrolling their property. I mean, railroads are private property. Their rights of way typically extend for 100 feet from, from either side of the, the center of the tracks. Uh, and, you know, they uh, it's their own land, and, and they, they tend to, to have ex- exerted greater control over it. And, you know, certainly they there's, there's some legalities to the photographer's face, uh, far more so now than, than um, during the time of some of these masters that we talked about earlier. We've also seen a, a depopulation of the railroad landscape uh, as uh, more and more jobs have shifted to technology. Uh, in the past, you would have had uh, stations in every town that would have had people working in them. You know, you, Photographers could go in and, uh, and have a conversation and find out maybe what was coming, and that's certainly not the case anymore. Uh, and then there's also been the uh, I think a bit of a homogenization of the technology as, you know, in, in the 1950s, you had uh, dozens of different uh, large railroad companies. Uh, that they, they were all still kind of regional carriers. And um, up until that time, most of the locomotives were steam powered. And the steam locomotive was uh, sort of a, a craft. I mean, these were often built in, in small batches. Um, and each one was unique and had its own special characteristics. And that really drove a lot of early photography was this great fascination with these, these incredible uh, works of art of, of the steam locomotives. And as that shifted now to you know, really just two locomotive manufacturers with you know models that, that generally look the same now. Uh, photographers like Eric have really um, found new ways to, to show the ongoing compelling nature of railroads by pulling back and taking in more of the landscape and, and showing more of the context. And so it's just an interesting arc of, of evolution of, of you know, this the same thing we call railroad photography, and yet it's it's changing greatly as the environment's changing, and photographers are, are rising to the to the challenge of of continuing to create compelling work. Mm-hmm. And it, again, this gets back a little bit to my question earlier, but you know, in, in photographing the train stations that may may be abandoned now is part of railroad photography or uh, details of the equipment. But it also seems to be there's this breakdown of people who want to photograph the engines themselves who really kind of fetishize on this whole, you know, big piece of metal. Uh, and then there's a the nostalgia aspect. And then, of course, you have people who are, you know, incorporating landscape and whatnot. But in your guys' opinion, it's all good? At the center, we take a, we take a very broad view of what constitutes railroad photography. Um, it was interesting. Our, our first issue of Robert Heritage this year uh, was uh, partly a tribute to our, our founder, John Gruber, who passed away last year. Uh, John was a very talented photographer who really came out of a photojournalistic school. We ran one of his most iconic photographs on the cover. It's a picture taken at Chicago Union Station looking under the arches, and there's a nun walking through them. And so there's no train, there's no track, but yet it's this great piece of architecture that was created you know, by and for the railroads uh, of Chicago Union Station. 
station, and then the nun who's you know probably there to either coming to or from a train. So even though there's no train or no even actual railroad in that photograph, everything in the picture is there because of the railroads. Uh, and there was a bit of a debate. Uh, one of our, our members wrote in and said he he thinks it's a great photograph, but doesn't consider it a railroad photograph, presumably because there's no tracks or no train. I mean, I would counter that everything in that shot is there because of the railroads, and, and for that reason, it's a it's a tremendous railroad photograph. But it is a bit of an ongoing debate. And Dennis, you do like obviously a lot of contemporary. You do a lot of great work with the subways here in New York, but you also focus on the steam trains. And uh, can you talk a little bit about that world and and the photographic element of it? I think every rail fan uh, gets born the first time they go trackside, as we call it. Uh, stay 12 feet away or more, kids. But anyway, that first yes. excitement, as Alan uh, spoke about uh, this, in, in, and Eric spoke about uh, this enormous machine that comes by, and it's frightening, but it's exhilarating. It's, it's so thrilling. Um, I for, first found out about them when my mother took me to uh, pick up my father at the Mamarnik uh, train station. And uh, shortly thereafter, Dad uh, uh, thrusts into my hands Lucius Beebe's uh, book called Highball. And in it, it had all of these incredible black and white photographs of steam locomotives. And I said, gee, Dad, I want to go see these. And he said, sorry, son, they're all gone. What? <laughs> and um, I, I'm a I, I, I think rail fans, <laughs> even including Eric and, and, and Scott, we, we're constantly trying to recapture that 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 kind of moment. And I've chased steam locomotives, even though they have uh, stopped being on uh, mainline uh, uh, USA mainline since 1960. I've chased the ones that uh, still exist. That's why I'm a volunteer at the National Park Service's uh, Steamtown. National Historic Site in Scranton, Pennsylvania, they have steam locomotives there. And we run passenger trains. I'm a conductor. I'm the guy who dresses black and white and gold and uh, goes up and down the aisle and says, uh, tickets, please, and all aboard. And uh, It's true, by the way. I have a photograph of him. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm uh, dressed that way today. I, I have pictures <laughs> dressed up as a dog running alongside the train barking at it. Thank you very much. I love you, Alan. <laughs> I love you. I, I always Can I get like a copy of one of those pictures? <laughs> I always feel like I'm in high school when I'm with Alan. <laughs> so uh, it, 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 it was that effort of trying to recapture this. And um, now my good friend Eric here it, it told me several years ago a couple of things. He said, Dennis, all the great ones like Steinheimer and, and Shaughnessy and Link, they did all these steam photos and they've done it all. Uh, you would have to come some up with something uh, really different to, to make any sort of difference in this uh, thing about black and white st steam locomotives. And, uh, he encouraged me to do what I was doing, particularly at the time, uh, this stuff with uh, New York City subways, which was completely different. I, I have pursued the stuff with the subways. There's a certain kind of snobbery. I've lived in New York City for 40 years, and I just never took any pictures locally because why would I want to take a picture of, uh, of a subway train when I could be chasing a steam train or doing a diesel on, in, in Cajon Pass or Tehachapi in California and stuff, you know, something real. It, it, it's kind of a social uh, level thing. You know, subway trains are for losers. And <laughs> bottom so, feeders. It, bottom feeders. You just... <laughs> <laughs> you just don't want to do that. You know, they're boring. They, they, people hate them, you know, all this sort of stuff. But uh, out on the number seven line in particular, which I regard as um, the lucky seven line, um, is also scenic. 
as it's hard to imagine, it is scenic. I find the times, my favorite times of the day, like with Eric, where I love great light. And great light happens out there all the time in the, the time I go out there. And there you find this amazing juxtaposition of buildings, of the, the trains, of sunlight it's glinting urban off. urban landscapes. Urban pure, landscapes yeah. and so forth. And uh, probably my iconic image, uh, all photographers have the one that they'll be remembered for by maybe not their favorite, but their the one that they'll be remembered. I called it uh, Number 7 City Sunset. It's from the 40th and Lowry Station on uh, the, the 7 line, and it's looking west. And yes, there's a train coming at us, but in the background, silhouetted against uh, a yellow sky and black clouds, are the Chrysler Building and the Empire State Building. And there is a, 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 a skein of cars on, on uh, Queens Boulevard down below. And it just was a magic moment that I did in 1913. Now, just like with Link, with Hotshot Eastbound, Eric then pointed out to me, well, you know, Dennis, I, I, I'm noticing this cinematic influence. I think it's, you know, uh, this is where uh, your, your life in cinema and I never thought of it that way before. You, were, you mentioned the glinting on the rails, and I know that in a lot of your, your photographs, that is something you incorporate. Is that uh, based basically on the daytime? Is that something you can control outside of just the, the setting or rising sun? Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, as with Dennis, you know, the, the light is key. Um, you know, I, I think um, most photographers in general look for that, you know, that beautiful light, you know, and, and, you know, in theory, it can happen any time of the day, you know, if it's the right light. But, uh, you know, when it rakes the, across the landscape in those first two hours of the morning or, or last two hours of the evening, you know, it's just beautiful. And, uh, you know, I, I use a tool, the, the photographer's, uh, what is it, Emerus? Um, is that what it's called? I think so. Yeah, That's as yeah. close as I can go. Um, you know, it's, it's a little uh, app on my uh, iPhone where um, I can calculate or it'll tell me exactly where the light will be um, any time of the day, uh, any day of the year. And uh, like during the, the daytime when the light is just so-so, you know, I'll scout locations and um, I'll look for specific places where I think that the light's going to hit the, the train in the right way. And I do often look for glint on the train and on the, the rails itself. And I often like backlight because um, if the locomotives are... Um, working really hard, they'll pull up um, some, you know, fairly invisible, like bluish white exhaust. But uh, with backlight, that sort of gets enhanced. And uh, it's sort of like my tribute, I think, to, you know, like a steam locomotive. Mm -hmm, you know, it's mm -hmm. it's not steam, but, <laughs> right. you know, it's still, it still shows that the locomotive is working, yeah. um, which, uh, you know, most people don't see. Mm -hmm. And, but, you know, these um, current locomotives are just big beast. You yeah. know, they're like three, four, five, six thousand horsepower uh, machines, and you know, you put three, four, five of them on a locomotive, and it's just like it's the the power is just unbelievable. Right. And you know, like I'm in awe, like we were talking about being trackside. I'm in awe of just as when I see a locomotive coming around the corner. Right. And, uh, you know, Dennis and I, you know, re regarding light, we have a little bit of a joke because, you know, like my little thing has been like uh, three points of light. Um, uh, a locomotive has, <laughs> uh, you know, in the, in the current state after, um, you know, uh, some safety mandates by the government, um, they have what, what is called ditch lights. So mm -hmm. they're uh, down in the lower um, positions of a locomotive and there's still the headlight on the top. So they form like a triangle of light. Okay. So once you see those, uh, that triangle of light and a little bit of glint on the rails, 
to me, that's enough to connotate that that's a that's train, a you know, yeah. a, a, you know, a train photograph, a railroad photograph. Right, right. And uh, can I jump over to Dennis then with some questions about? I know you've lit some some scenes, and we talked natural light, but can you talk a little bit about lighting some of the the photographs you've taken, sure. where you have the steam and the trains coming? And uh, <clears throat> it, it's no secret that O. Winston Link is, is a hero of mine. Uh, I was fortunate enough to go to his studio a few times and actually speak to the great man himself. And uh, of course, he, he did something that was unique. He, and he, as he told me there, he said, uh, I, I wanted to f make it really difficult and shoot moving trains and at night. And uh, I haven't quite emulated his flash bulbs. That would cost thousands of dollars, but uh, I have I have been doing uh, I have done some stuff with speed lights, like three speed lights and radio uh, controlled triggers. I particularly was successful uh, up at the Valley Railroad in Essex, Connecticut, and uh, they run trains at night, uh, passenger trains in the winter. So there's snow, passenger trains, and uh, winter is great for steam. Because what happens, the, the steam condenses into this white vapor, these huge clouds that just uh, uh, combined with the kinetic energy and imagery of the locomotive. They, I mean, you've got these big steel wheels. They're spoked and they, they're joined by side rods and they're moved by these main rods. And as they go down the track, it makes this hypnotic, elliptical, kinetic energy. I find that an attraction for trains is basically that we we love movement. Mm. I had to figure How do you out. How try to capture the movement, though? I mean, because a lot of the photos that I, that I mean, I asked about you know long exposure before, but what about in your work? I mean, is it more about freezing that moment or freezing I that image? Or, tend to or, freeze or, it, but yeah. then there's there also we use the pan shot. Mm -hmm. You know, where we shoot it like a fifteenth of a second, and we pan the camera along with the lo locomotive, and this can cause a blurring of the wheels, mm -hmm. the, the swirling. But I, I tend to find that it usually works best to do a frozen moment because then there's the clarity of the smoke of, of the machinery. And what kind of exposures are we talking about? And, and usually the smoke and a little bit of blur of the wheels can convey the, the uh, 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 movement uh, part of it so it doesn't look still. That was the great thing about the steam locomotive. With all the smoke, you always knew it was moving. Mm. With the diesel, it was more challenging uh, mm. because... It, it, it just could be just sitting there, uh, as, whereas, you know, uh, photographers have incorporated with diesels a little bit of smoke, the, the panning or, or great lighting to convey movement. Uh, exposures, uh, I, I, I tend to use around a, a thousandth ISO, uh, a five hundredth or a thousandth of a second, and uh, whatever wide open is. And uh, uh, usually that I look for backlight, I look for lighting, uh, backlighting, great light, um, and so forth. I you're shooting with a Canon DSLR, correct? That is correct. I use okay. a six D, okay, and uh, Canon lenses. Now, golly, the the fellow, the Australian photographer who took mirrors out to the lake in mm -hmm. the desert, yes, that yeah. Yeah. Fredericks, uh, that that fellow. Mm -hmm. I really liked his comment about how what he did was he was just gathering data. Mm. And uh, he wasn't really thinking about it. He was just taking the pictures. And that's what I do. When when Eric and I are together shooting, I'm running around like a chicken with a head cut off, going tick, 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 shooting like crazy. And, and, and Eric will just stand there 
click. <laughs> and um, my method of data gathering is I, I, I shoot like crazy. I shoot with three cameras, three lenses, and go, 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 because the steam and stuff don't last very long. Or in the subways, the light's not lasting. I, I, I use the three cameras to capture all this data. And then at home, that's when I can shape it and so forth and mm -hmm. play with it. Mm -hmm. and, and I try to draw out, I try to make it as dramatic as possible because I love this stuff because it's so And is dramatic. that true, Eric? Do, are you kind of just a one-shot type of guy? Uh, or you, yeah, yeah. I, I think in general, I'm a little bit more deliberate than Dennis. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a different uh, approach. For me, I, I like to sort of like pre-compose, pre-visualize what I want. Mm -hmm. So, um, Do you often um, wait for, like, do you see one train go by and you go, okay, I know another one's coming at 15. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't used to be able to do that. You know, I used to get frustrated if I would miss a train, mm -hmm. you know, even if I got like, you know, a shot that was crappy. Right. Um, but now, um, you know, the mind, if I just get one beautiful shot a day, I'm happy. So typically for me, I'll, I'll pre-visualize where I want to be. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure that the light is what I expect it to be. And I'll put my camera on a tripod just so that I can, you know, get the perfect composition mm -hmm. and get the train exactly where I want it. Mm -hmm. um, back in the days where I didn't use a tripod so much, you know, I would be trackside and um, I would have an idea of where I wanted my composition, but in the excitement of watching the train and panning it through the viewfinder, I would sort of like lose that composition and I'd get home, hmm. put the stuff on, you know, the computer and be like, oh, I yeah. completely blew the composition. <laughs> I'll have to go back and get that uh, shot again. And is that because you wanted the train, the, you know, the engine or the front of the train in a certain spot within the frame? Yeah, yeah. T t typically, I'm just trying to like find the right balance yeah. uh, of the, the, the train within the landscape. So I I kind of know exactly where I want it to be. Mm -hmm. um, so, so for me, that's a key aspect is, uh, you know, just uh, being a little bit more And focused. if you guys are shooting trackside and you want to get that shot, say you're, you're relatively close to the train that's coming and you want to get the front of the train and, and some context of what's behind, what, what's, what lenses are usually or what focal length are usually at? You're describing a wedgie. Mm-hmm which is uh, uh, the classic Lucius BB mm -hmm. form of photography where you stand cl relatively close to track, to the track. It, we real fans like to call it track side. Mm, of course. And yeah. uh, mm -hmm. you're standing there safe and uh, you, you're trying to get the entire train or most of the train in shot. And uh, the highlights or the number boards must be sharp. Mm -hmm. And they're usually around uh, the upper... Uh, uh, upper intersections of the rule of thirds. And uh, this it's not easy to do because you've got this big wall of metal coming at you. Sure. It's frightening. And like with Eric, you know, sometimes you, 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 you blow it. So you have to concentrate. It, it, I found it particularly problematic because I'm trying to expose and compose for something that wasn't there. Mm. And so I, I could take pretty pictures of my girlfriend, but she wasn't moving. You know, this thing is moving and it's not like, hey, excuse me, sir, would you mind stopping and backing up and we'd like to have another mm -hmm. go? It's not possible. So it, 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 it is that kind of uh, aesthetic. Generally, like with a, a full frame camera, you're using a 50 millimeter lens, you want 500th of a second or thousandth of a second to stop a 60 mile per hour locomotive. Uh, anything less than 500. Okay, I was wondering. Yeah. Less than 500, uh, you will. Uh, it'll be blurry. The number boards will be blurry, and all your rail fan friends will disparage you. How intimidating is it being there? Even if you know you're in a safe spot. If you have your telephoto on, like uh, like um, Dennis was talking about, you know, and you're out there at 
200 millimeters or whatever, and the train's still half a mile away, you know, it's, it's not intimidating at all. But, you know, as soon as you take that shot, then the train whizzes by you if you're on a platform. And I shoot a lot on New Jersey Transit as well. So I'm, you know, familiar from being on the platform and getting that sense of, you know, like speed and adrenaline when the train goes rushing by. Um, but just to go back to a little bit about what uh, Dennis was talking about in terms of shutter speeds and so forth, um, you know, a lot of it just depends on how close the train is to you. Like, like with my photography, oftentimes um, because of a, a, a broader view, um, my shutter speeds could be as low as a 60th of a second um, just because the train is just so much smaller. Um, which which makes it a little easier when the, the light starts to go down, you know, because uh, I always try to be like, um, you know, like F8, F13 in that range. And I know like Dennis has a tendency to shoot, you know, a little bit more wide open in a lot of his shots. Um, like my, my shot of number seven, City Sunset, I, I was shooting with a 40D. Uh, it looks terrible above 800 ISO. I had a 2.8 lens, but it, the light was so low the shutter speed was one hundredth of a second, and I'm thinking, my God, how am I, how's this going to work? Because this is a moving train. Ah, uh, yes, but as right you learn, you. you know, coming towards you, right straight you. towards yeah. you, the displacement is far less. And I was able to get that tack sharp, and uh, don't tell anybody, but the Empire State Building's a little soft, <laughs> so uh, it, that one worked out. Now, whereas if it had been more of an angle, the the, the train would be hopelessly. Really blurred. Right, now, right. The, one of the things about this photography, like, I like you mentioned, for all of you out there contemplating railroad photography, mm -hmm. think of it this way: you you have to uh, combine several disciplines in doing this. Like Eric, you have to be someone who knows the landscape. You're a landscape photographer. You know, have to know light, sunlight, position, composition, exposure. You have to deal with atmosphere. Some of Eric's work is with fog. It's and wonderful. Yeah, the light and the fog is great. Yeah. Is just stunning and okay now you've done that now you have to be a wildlife photographer because you have to analyze your your prey mm -hmm. and know where the birds i mean the trains are going to be and when they're going going to run then once they they've come you have to switch over to being an action photographer you have to know your camera cold mm -hmm. you have to be able to know what all its settings do and so you have to be ready for that second when that you, you want to capture that moment now one you of shoot first Often or normally, both. I do not normally. Mm -hmm. I, I usually wait till it comes to that spot, sort of like like Eric. I may take some other useless pictures. I know other. I know one fellow who uh, spent well, I don't know five thousand dollars on a, a, a Nikon five uh, D five, and just so he could have you know fourteen FPS, so that the rods on the locomotive. You see, aesthetically, we like to have rods down. And so the main rod has a nice angle and the rods and the counterweights roll just in a perfect spot. So that way, as the steam engine is going by, he'd go and pick the moment. I don't ascribe to that. I just look for the rods down and then I press the shutter. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but Eric, would you, I mean, is this idea of having the rods down and these kind of ideal aesthetics something that you consider concern yourself with much? Or, I mean, when it's at a major distance, I guess it doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that that is um, in the steam, uh, you know, when you're shooting steam locomotives, mm. I think that's sort of like a, a common expectation within right. the genre. 
And, and you know, the, the genre does have its own set of expectations right. of what makes a proper, you know, railroad photograph. Yes. Like I remember being, you know, online in a forum with somebody who was arguing, not with me, <laughs> but with somebody else, that it wasn't a proper steam locomotive photograph because the tender was partially cut off, you know. And and I think, like, conversations like that are a little ridiculous. But, uh, you know, like, like I said, I, I think every genre of photography has a certain, mm-hmm. you know, expectations by, you know, the the... The, the masses, I would say, you know, yeah. and it's those people that are able to break beyond that are the ones that can do some really mm-hmm. interesting photography. And, well, you didn't mention the documentary aspect because a lot of your work incorporates the people that are working there and, you know, the conductors and forgive me for not, you know, the, the, the train men, engineers, I don't know what you call them, but, right. you know, so that's an, another aspect of it too. If you do trains, you become a landscape photographer, a wildlife photographer, sports photographer, and eventually uh, this is where it be, particularly comes joyful is a portrait photographer mm. mm-hmm. and uh you know as a kid doing pictures I, I i couldn't i wouldn't i couldn't no no way you could take a picture of a person uh now that i've gotten old and who cares i find delving into this atmosphere of steam locomotives and old railways and so forth it, it, it's kind of dream fulfillment that i, I it gives me a, a feeling of a calmness and of happiness uh, that it's a world that I, I love exploring and doing it in the context of steam uh, and railroad, steam railroading, I, I'm able to explore that emotion that I feel was around in America in the mid 20th century. One thing we didn't mention also is uh, still life photography. There's a lot of wonderful, you know, pieces of equipment and yeah. close-ups of the trains and things like that, which is another aspect of it. Eric, you you blend color and black and white. Um, do you? How do you decide what you're going to do and when you're going to do it? Well, I have a tendency to um, see in black and white, and I think that goes back to my early days of learning photography back in high school and you know in college for a little bit. Um, you know, back then, everything for me was Tri-X, mm-hmm. um, learning to print in the dark room. You know, I would have black and white prints. So I just sort of trained myself to see it that way. Um, so in general, when I'm out and I'm thinking about a photograph that I want to make, it's usually I'm thinking of it in black and white. Um, mm-hmm. I'll make an exception if um, color enhances the image. You know, like color has its own level of emotion. Um, and if the, the photograph works better with that, emotional quality of color, I'll incorporate it. If it doesn't, I like sort of like to pull out the color and Mm -hmm. it it allows you to focus a little bit more on the context Mm -hmm. um, and the the content of the image itself. Um, And for me, being like a designer by trade, you know, like having the composition, the form, the structure of a photograph is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Eric, what do you, what's your setup? What do you use? What cameras, what lenses do you try to uh, stick with? Like uh, Dennis, I have a Canon 60 mm-hmm. and I've got like three um, zoom lenses. I got like the all L series. I got the 16, the 35, the, the 24, 24 70, uh, I actually have the 24, the 105, mm-hmm. which which I find a good lens if, if you have it in the middle there. Right. And then the you know the standard for railroad photography is like the 70 to 200. Mm-hmm. The I usual think. suspects. Yeah, I think everybody yeah. owns that 70 to 200. And in railroad photography, the, the 150 to 600 range is also mm-hmm. very popular. And do you guys have, do you guys know people out there that are working with old cameras or cameras? They, they, they really try to incorporate this nostalgia maybe or either the, or that or they're artisans of, of the craft and they, they want to use field cameras. Cameras and old uh, wooden contraptions. Not I. Every once in a while, pull out a film camera, Mm -hmm. and uh, what what we often have are charters where we'll buy the railroad for the day. Mm. Uh, 
these are heritage railroads uh, uh, where uh, it, that normally uh, uh, are museum type things where you can go for a ride with your family with antique equipment. But these charters, we own the railroad, we can put the train where we want and make it do stuff. So those are like 20 to 30 or 40 people all there on a photo line. We, mm -hmm. we make a line. And that's where uh, this is the, the society, uh, social aspects. We know each other. We, we appreciate them. Uh, and we all appreciate our different styles. And yeah, I pull out an Argus brick and people go, what the heck is that thing? Right. And uh, <laughs> so forth. Uh, generally, uh, the, I'm finding uh, some people, yes, are going over to mirrorless, particularly liking uh, uh, Fuji cameras. Uh, uh, Matthew Malkovitz, he dumped all of his Canon stuff for these smaller cameras, and mm -hmm. he's doing fabulous work. Uh, mm -hmm. Blair Coistra, another fellow who uh, dumped his big DSLRs for uh, uh, Fuji's as well. But uh, uh, no, I myself, I've decided on the uh, Canon 6D, uh, which is now discontinued uh, because of its low light capabilities. It's uh, minus 3 dB center point focusing point, which is really important mm. when you're out in the dark. Is that a focus and work for you guys? Um, I use uh, I use uh, the, the bat book back button type focus mm -hmm. where I, I use the, the mechanism to, to, to get the focus I want. Uh, I was always having such terrible times with moving trains and autofocus because right at the moment I'd press it, it would then start hunting and going right. somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. now normally what I'm sure, I, I just use the back button focus. I set, I set where the focus is. Right. And uh, I can do can continually press the button and on the focus point, uh, you know, it, it will maintain the autofocus. But generally speaking, I set it and keep it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for, for me, I, um, I almost always turn off the autofocus. I use manual focus probably 90% of the time because, mm -hmm. like I said earlier, I like to pre-compose my shot and mm -hmm. I know exactly where I want the train to be. So I focus manually on that point because um, I've had too many errors in the past with autofocus systems. Right. Um, so this way it just takes it Let's completely into it. my like hands. Spend a lot of time setting up a shot and <laughs> yeah. then the autofocus yeah. good job. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing we didn't talk too much about is safety and it's come up a bit and obviously every year oh. you hear a, you know, a oh, horror yeah. story about somebody mm -hmm. you know, taking photos on a train on a train track and, uh, and the worst happens. Um, can you guys, other than just the obvious, you know, saying be careful, talk about specifics and even... Like your own, do you guys use do you guys use um, earplugs? Do you use special shoes? Do you have any kind of considerations that that we might want to be hearing about? Well, for me, I think if you're going to be trackside, you know, you're around a lot of um, gravel and potentially like dangerous objects on the ground. So I always wear like boots, mm -hmm. um, just like the railroaders would. Um, but beyond safety that, goggles, I don't uh, no, not safety goggles in my situation. Um, I think most people that would call themselves rel fans, um, which I am a rel fan, um, 
you know, are pretty cognizant of the way the railroad runs. And um, I think safety is less of a concern. I think, you know, when you hear about uh, trespass accidents, it's usually, you know, like somebody that's walking their dog that mm-hmm. may be listening to like their Walkman or, or uh, you know, their... Well, there's been a couple of like fashion related uh, shoots that, you know, mostly amateur photographers, I guess you'd call them, but who decided that, you know, the middle of the train track was the spot to uh, set up. The fashion shoots, senior prom, so forth. Yes, tracks are very attractive. They've got these converging lines. Mm-hmm. You, they're is irresistible. You know, all of us photographers love this. And stuff. you guys but just make a rule not never to shoot not, on a track. We or call it work. in the gauge mm-hmm. when we're in inside of the the two rails or within twelve feet of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even if you're twelve feet away, there's still danger because if it's a freight train, there could be some. A lot of these things have lumber. Mm-hmm. Lumber is put on by metal straps. Sometimes the metal straps. Break right, sure. and they're they're like a, a knife blade floating through the air at thirty miles an hour. And when I worked when I work at Steamtown, uh, I really became cognizant of how dangerous these things are. Even these antique uh, uh, train cars and railheads and, and locomotives, they don't care about you. They will pop you like a zit. It, we'll definitely it, keep that in. <laughs> you know, and so they will kill you. These things, will, if you don't uh, watch out, so you have you gain tremendous respect for that. So the, all those people out there doing those senior pictures in the tracks, don't do it. You can, if you want, find a local train museum. Uh, there are many, there, there are like hundreds of them throughout the United States, which have tracks where they're not running trains. You go there, ask them permission, and they say, "Sure." You know, and you can go and take all as many pictures as you want. But if you see shiny rail, that means they're trains. If the tr- track is shiny, uh, you know a train could come upon you in thirty seconds, and you won't hear it. Be careful out there. <laughs> yeah, be careful out there. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, well, it's it's always good talking about something that we feel passionate about, and we definitely had a lot of passion going around this room here today. Okay, Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. If people want to see more of your work, where can they go? It's been my absolute pleasure to join you, and if you'd like to see more from the center, you can find us online at railphoto-art.org. Okay, and it's Scott Lotus. That's L-O-T-H-E-S. Scott, thank you for joining us. Great work, and uh, thanks for all the info today. (laughs) Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. Dennis, uh, people want to see more of your work. Where can they go to? Well, I do have a website, livesyimages.com. That's L-I-V as in Victor, E-S-E-Y, images.com. Okay. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, a rail fan website, which has some astonishingly good photography called railpictures.net. And look for the book. Smoke and you over can look. Steam oh, yes. Town. Shameless plug time. Uh, Smoke Over Steamtown. Beautiful book. Uh, available at fine booksellers and online. And uh, look for uh, announcements for another gallery show. Oh, yes. And my, my second book uh, uh, regarding uh, uh, transit called Transitscapes. Forward to seeing it. Eric, what about yourself? Uh, for me, I have a website as well. It's uh, ericwilliams.photography.com. Mm-hmm. And you can also find my find me at Instagram. It's ericwilliams underscore photography. 
And then uh, a couple of other things. Um, I've always wanted to be featured in uh, Trains Magazine, as I mentioned earlier, and they're going to run a gallery of my photography oh, nice. in wow. July issue of uh, 10 pages, Fantastic. Nice. Uh, which is nice. And then uh, going back to the CRPA, um, Scott has invited me to present uh, this September there, so I'm going to do a presentation and also be showing uh, the work from my uh, show, A Light Landscape and Longing, there. Outstanding. Cool. Nice, Fantastic. nice stuff. That's great. great. That's wonderful. Okay. If you are not a subscriber to the BNH Photography Podcast, what you waiting for? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, and Spotify. And you can always find us on the BH Explorer website and the BH Photography Podcast Facebook group. And as always, tell them Al sent you. For now, on behalf of Jason, John, and myself, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey.